Welcome to the Why God Why podcast brought to you by Browncroft Community Church. My name is Dylan Carnival and I am the Browncroft staff and producer of the show. I'm joined today by our host, Peter Englert, Director of Adult Ministries at Browncroft, and John Amayo, the New York State Crew Director. Why God Why is a podcast where we ask 21st century questions about God that you never thought you could. And today we have Zeb Huff, pastor of uh, Ridgeland Community Church, and he is leader of the adult recovery program at the Open Door Mission. Today we're talking about why God why are so many people affected by the opioid crisis. Peter and John, take it away. So I have to be honest with you. I I feel really I'm not an expert in this. It and you know I, I feel like you and me. There's a lot of topics that we know enough to be dangerous. This is one of those where I I don't feel prepared necessarily. That's why we trust our guest and. It just seems like this crisis has hit so many people. And, you know, our last episode, we interviewed uh, Anna, who's the executive director of Open Door Mission. Zeb is from Open Door Mission. We've done episodes on being addicted. If you're a listener, you know, you either know someone affected by the opioid crisis or you know someone personally or experiencing the opioid crisis. So I hope that all of you stay in. This is a huge issue that I think we need to talk about. Yeah, I agree. I feel like I'm just a learner in this as well. So um, I'm someone who's on the journey of learning about this, but I don't think you can escape it. Like, and, and if you look at the news, it's all over the news now. Even recently, this week, as we're recording this podcast, a teacher in this in a school district in our area uh, was found in a stairwell, uh, overdosed on opioids. And uh, they had to revive her to bring her back to life. Um, crazy story. Just a teacher in the middle of a school and um, ad- addicted. And unfortunately, I wish I could say that was an odd thing now, but it's more and more an issue. And I think we need to discuss things like this. Um, so that's why I'm super glad, again, to have back for the second time on our uh, podcast the one, the only, Zeb Huff. Welcome, Zeb. Great to have you here. Thanks so much. Good to be here. Yeah. Zeb, you are the you are in the two times club. I feel like this is the Saturday Night Live. You know? Yeah, you're like uh, you know Eddie Murphy of us or Richard De Niro or hey, uh, who, I, wait, what is it? Alec Baldwin who gets it most? Yeah, I think Alec Baldwin. Yeah. Maybe. Okay, I don't know. there you go. It sounds like a cool club to be a part of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, uh, you know, Zeb, you and I have spent a lot of time together and we've talked about this and, you know, we know this is going to be a heavier podcast. So, you know, I just kind of want to ask you, um, how has opioids personally affected your life and just, you know, the I, the desire to to really see people be healed from this and in recovery? Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for the question. And thanks for having me on again. Like you said, this is, um, it's a huge issue for me. It's very, very close to home. Uh, it's one of those, it's one of those things that I've actually been, um, touched by all my life. Uh, I watched, uh, drug addiction and opioid addiction, uh, run through my family. Multiple people in my family have been uh, in recovery. Some people in my, in my family still in active addiction. Um, and the, 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 op- the, the, the sweep of the opioid crisis 
uh, has just changed how all of that looks. It used to be just parts of our family or parts of uh, of my family, uh, you know, doing doing their thing. And now more and more and more, it is um, it's the ones you least expect. Uh, most recently, probably uh, last year. Um, was my brother Sean, who actually overdosed and died um, from fentanyl, from a, from a fentanyl overdose. Uh, he had been in recovery, uh, had been doing really well. Uh, in fact, we had, we had had uh, coffee at Java's on Gibbs, uh, on Gibbs Street downtown uh, just a month before. And I'd asked him, how you doing? And he said, I got it under control. I'm, I'm finally... Um, I'm finally seeing the light. He had a job. Uh, he was the golden child, so to speak, of recovery. He, it felt like he was finally making some breakthroughs. And um, uh, it was a month later, uh, almost to the day, that we, we found him in his living room in his chair, uh, in, in the chair in his living room, and he had overdosed and died. Um, and it was just, it was kind of like he was that one time uh, thing. And it was such a small amount. It was probably laced uh, in something else he was, he, he was uh, messing around with and, uh, and it ended his life. So uh, it's, it's certainly a topic that just, I, I feel passionate about, like we as the church need to be not only aware of it, but we need to be active in it. And I think it, the, the prevalence of opioid crisis calls for us as the church to understand the underlying issue, which is addiction. Uh, but more, it calls for us to be bold in our conviction and how we confront that uh, this specific addiction and how we how, how we embrace those individuals who suffer from it. And in the past, it, it has been a shame thing. Like we don't talk about it. We, we we all know about it. We we all know about cousin Susie who takes one too many pills or, or or those kinds of things. We have little nicknames like pill popper and those kinds of things. Um, and and it's it's rooted and buried in shame. We don't talk about cousin Susie. We don't invite cousin Susie over when we want to impress the guests. Uh, but cousin Susie needs us to change how we look at her, how we look at her sickness. And that's why I'm here today, because I, I think that it's it's a topic that we need to just unbury and we need to we need to expose it for what it is. I'm just going to ask you just kind of to give us a working <clears throat> definition. So I, I think we hear a lot about drugs. Sure. How would you or how have you defined opioid addiction? Like, what is it? You know, you mentioned pill popping. Just, sure. you know, because I, I think some people might think breaking bad or something like how would you best understand it? Sure. So uh, opioids are generally prescribed at first. Um, they they are used generally in a healthy way, uh, in a prescribed way, they're used for pain management. And in 2010, if you look at sort of the timeline of this whole thing, in 2010, sort of the medical profession got pr prescription happy. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't anyone's fault. I don't, I don't want to throw shade on any of our partners in the community. Everyone's just doing the best they can. But 2010, there, you see, statistically, there's a spike in prescribed opioids. And 
the thing about these is their habit forming. And so once you, once they're on them, they get taken away. And what we do as human beings is we find the next best thing um, because we formed a habit around a feeling of having no pain. Um, and so uh, that's where the heroin, uh, fentanyl, all, all of those uh, drugs sort of get introduced to us. They're, um, they are substitutes for, uh, for pain relievers. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So that, that spike was maybe Oxycontin yep. or, mm -hmm. you know, other, other drugs like that, that doctors will prescribe. Mm -hmm. Um, and then people like fentanyl is a more recent adjustment to that, like a cheaper solution Right. And in a that. deadly one at that, mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I wish I could, unfortunately with podcasts and, and those kinds of things, there's no visu visual aids I can give, but I mean, if you can imagine it takes uh, a pinch of salt worth of fentanyl to overdose on. Wow. Um, and so it's a, it's a synthetic version of, uh, of heroin basically. And it's, it's just deadly stuff. It's poison. So let, let's come back to your brother, if that's okay. You know, sure. uh, the the thing that I'm hearing that's different about opioids, it's people already injured in some way. Mm -hmm. And then instead of really getting healing from this injury, it actually, to stop the pain, it gets worse by being addicted. You know, what was your brother's story, you know, sure. starting there? So Sean uh, was a mechanic all of his life. Uh, that was his trade. That was what he did. And um, he, as I mentioned, he had been uh, in recovery. Uh, crack was was his previous life. And he made a full recovery. He was a mechanic locally here in Rochester uh, and had an on-the-job uh, accident where he hurt his back. And it was the first thing they gave him, even though he had addiction in his background uh, and is well documented, the first thing they gave him uh, was a prescription, uh, a prescription narcotic for the pain. And it was, it was almost, from what I understand, it was almost like a wave. And so he, he resisted it. He like threw it away. He was going cold turkey, wasn't going to use the pain medicine for his back um, because he recognized it. Like it was just like a cloud. He, he defined it as a cloud. And so he did he did all the right things that he could do. Um, he tapped back into N.A. He uh, belonged to a local church and. Again, I mean, I'm 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 a professional in 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 this realm, and so from the outside, it looked like he was doing everything healthy that uh, that he could do. But pain is like this dirty mistress; it just never leaves you alone, and it's gnawing and it's nagging. And so he didn't have the the uh, prescription because he threw that away. Uh, he didn't know how to use it in uh, in a productive way, and what what it looks like is he, the pain just got too bad, and so he found the next best thing. And instead of calling his sponsor, instead of reaching out, um, and you, you go to your mind, and I mean, I'm I'm left like, why, mm. you know? Um, so instead of doing those things, uh, 
he he tried the next best thing, which was something laced with fentanyl, and that was that was it. As you put yourself back, well, I, I mean, first of all, I just really appreciate your vulnerability and sharing your story with us. And I, I imagine, you know, having that conversation with your brother as you think about having coffee with him, you know, that moment probably has to be really, really significant in your mind as you think back. Was that the last conversation that you had with him was over coffee? It was. And I, I've replayed it so many times. What what did I miss? Mm-hmm. What was what was what was glaring? And, you know, I as I think about what what I missed, it was probably um nothing I, I, I was equipped to to catch on mm-hmm. that day. But in in the year that has passed, I think what I've come away with is I missed that this was probably his only person. I, I was his only person who he could reach out with and who understood where he was. Um, he had a sponsor, but his sponsor only knows knows him from NA. And so in the context of NA, like you're my name is Sean and I'm an I'm an addict. Uh, no one knew him and he was not in relationship uh, with uh, with any of his kids, any any girlfriend, no personal relationship. And so I would say the 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 one thing that I wish I could have maybe gone back, like if I could go back and do something different, it would just be to get Sean in, into healthy community where he could just be Sean, mm. where he didn't have to be Sean the addict, where he didn't have to be Sean in recovery, where he didn't have to be Sean the mechanic necessarily, but where he could just be Sean and be accepted um, as himself, as who he is, and 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 bring to bear all of who he is. And if I can just speak to that for for mm-hmm. a minute, I think all all addiction is rooted in self gratification. When we're left to our own defenses, to our, our own coping mechanisms, to figure it out. We always figure it out in a way that we can handle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all addiction is rooted in self-gratification. And as I think about that, all recovery, all true recovery is is rooted in the ability to have deeply authentic and healthy trusting relationships. Um, and And so I think that that's one of the hardest things for addicts to have especially those who are not in those beginning phases. There's a lot of support around people who have be, have kind of hit rock bottom and in general addiction. And like I said, opioid addiction in particular, it is, it's a, it's a hidden addiction. It, it's not one that people say, Oh, there's, she's strung out. It's, it's someone who's, they're managing pain. Um, and, and so it's a hidden addiction, and because it's a hidden addiction, there's no there there's no access automatically to true community unless community is built around this idea of we can be who we are with ourselves, we can be just as we are, and we can form authentic, healthy, trusting relationships with each other and with God. Um, 
And so that's that's something I oh, we we take seriously at the Open Door Mission. Um, it, it's something that I've taken seriously in in my own. Uh, I'm very passionate about uh, having people who I know struggle uh, in my life and giving them community. And I'm I'm kind of crazy about it uh, because I, I I just think we need to undemonize uh, mm-hmm. this whole population of people who suffer. Sounds to me as you're talking, you're talking about addictions being about self gratification. Mm-hmm. Seems like you're describing the solution to that being community. I think part of community, and maybe you can speak to this as kind of the 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 antithesis of self gratification is is really sacrifice. Mm. You know, and and it takes a sacrifice to really break that addictive cycle. Yeah. But sometimes people don't have the ability to make that sacrifice on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think about, I, I'm totally just coming off of that, what, what you're saying. So what do you think about that? No, I think, I think that what you, what, what you're saying is, is spot on. And I think that sometimes we can we can take that and kind of put the onus on uh, on the person struggling, mm-hmm. and so they have to sacrifice. Right. And if they, uh, I've heard it said, like if they want to be a part of our community, then they have to reach out. They have to they have to you know leave the couch and come to us. And I, I think, I mean in a broader way for the church, one of our biggest obstacles, we have to stop inviting people to church and start inviting the church to people again. Mm. And I think the sacrifice is on us. I think that we have to, we have to be the kind of movement that enters into the world and says, you know what? The one we follow gave his all to invite us. So, if we haven't given our all, Hebrews says that you have not reached the point of death in your sacrifice and what you've given. Uh, so we haven't given enough. How much is enough, Peter? We were talking the other day. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. Mm. Um, you know, how, 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 how much do we need to reach out a little bit more? We reach out until we bring them in, until we, as Jude says, we snatch them from the fire. Um, because addiction is a consuming fire. Um, the prophet Jeremiah paints a graphic picture of uh, of uh, of addiction when he talks about, um, in the Lord's words, he says, "My people have traded the the living water for broken cisterns that can't hold anything." Mm. And that's, that's what we're doing. Like we're passing these people on the streets, we're passing them in work, we're passing them at church. Um, and they're holding sisters that can't hold water. And we're, we're, we're okay drinking from our, our spring of life. I think the sacrifice is admitting to ourselves that they need help and they can't ask for it. And so we have to get in their business. We have to stop being polite and we have to get where they are. And I I think that that's the essence of true community. So I I just want to back up a little bit because I think what you're saying is um, we need to take that as practical steps and we're going to come back to that. But um, so on a day in the open door mission, Mm. somebody with an opioid crisis comes in, walk us through 
generally what happens and kind of going from addict to, you know, in recovery, what does that process look like? So the open door mission, we've written a, a we've written a pretty comprehensive program and actually we, we are a long-term inpatient uh, program. So someone comes to us, they come with uh, the clothes on their back and a couple of bags and they live with us, they eat with us, they sleep with us. Um, we, um, for the first 30 days, it's important to find detachment. And the reason it's important to find detachment is because in isolation, the only thing that you are able to do, generally speaking, is hold on to toxic attachments. And so we want to get rid of all toxic attachments. And so we don't, we don't try to differentiate. We bring people in, we say no jobs, no contact with your family, um, no, uh, no outings, no anything. And for 30 days, they focus on themselves. They focus on getting the rest that they need and they focus on uh, deciding for themselves as they come to a place of settledness if the open door is, is the right place for them. Uh, in that in that first 30 days, we work with them on a case management level. We look into their background, we look into their finances, we look into their medical um, and their medicine, because what we're finding is there are some medicines that are just um, the next opioid of choice uh, waiting to happen because, I mean, from... Uh, from Suboxone to Gabapentin, all of these uh, all of these drugs are alternatives to opioids that can be abused in the same way mm-hmm. as opioids, and so it's almost a never-ending cycle. But we have to we we have to be proactive at, at, at least in the first thirty days, uh, so that we are we are weaning these uh, these guys off of uh, off of those things that can be abused. We're monitoring the the higher higher potential for abuse drugs um and the treatment team which is made up of a case manager a chaplain and um myself (laughs) um we get around this person and we come up with an individualized care plan that takes into consideration their background their medical their financial uh their needs and their addiction and we've and, and we we invite them to the table and together, we put together a, tr- a treatment plan for the next 12 months that's going to, um, first of all, get them the care they need, uh, invite them into a community setting. And by the way, our, our program happens at the same place as our headquarters on Plymouth Avenue. So at the same place as our finance department and our, and our, clothing, uh, our clothing room and all those things, uh, our guys are doing program in community from day one because mm-hmm. uh, it's just we want to show them that trusting, authentic, healthy relationships are possible. Going beyond uh, the first 30 days, they move into a stability phase where our goal for them is to take what they've had for these 30 days, these trustworthy interactions with community and build it for themselves. And so they build um, in stability phase, they build a social support network for themselves. That includes a um, an addiction sponsor, a spiritual mentor, and finding a home church where they can serve. Because mm. um, being able to give, being able to give back is part of recognizing your own human dignity. 
one of the first things we uh, we work on in stability phase is actually working through an entire book with your spiritual mentor, because while it sounds kind of s- small uh, to people who are stuck in addiction, completing something gives them a, a a piece of power, a piece of agency that they've ne- they very rarely had in addiction. And so the first thing they experience truly sober is the ability to complete something with someone they trust. So what is that experience like for them? Like how, what, what feedback have you received about that experience? Cause that, that I wouldn't necessarily think about that <clears throat> when I think of addiction recovery, mm-hmm. but as you talk about it, I go, man, that's, actually could be really significant. Like what, what feedback have you gotten about that? Well, it it, is varying and wide ranging from, from some folks don't see the point um, to some people, it becomes their favorite book. Like Uh this book that they finished becomes, because it's the only one they've ever read cover to cover. Wow. Um, And so it, it varies and it's wide ranging, but, Regardless of what what they take from from the experience in case management, we focus in on how did that feel? Like, what does that mean to actually take something from beginning to end? And and, and to some guys, I mean, to, to a functional addict who didn't fall apart and didn't wait till it was too late. They're like, it feels like everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and. So we're great. We're, we're happy to start there and start working on completing things that are healthy and working on completing things in integrity and in authenticity. Um, and to some people, I didn't even finish school. So mm-hmm. the ability to read a book and actually be able to talk intelligently about it, like, I think I'm fully recovered. I think I got this. Yeah. I'm ready to leave the program. And we're like, hold on, hold on. That's a good start. <laughs> but uh, um, uh, we, we got more work to do. Yeah. And so once they are utilizing their social support network and they, they are um, ready for, for life outside the mission, uh, they enter into a six-month uh, genesis phase, um, and they're, you can see the tension. They're ready to leave, and they start working on uh, the relapse prevention portion of the, pro- uh, of the program. It's important that they are standing on their own two feet, that they're stable, that they have a social support network, because as we move through both the 12 step process and, and our curriculum called Genesis process. Uh, as we move through both of those things, the introspective reflection that they have to do and the habit change mm. takes a, 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 a willing spirit, uh, cause it is a marathon. It's a process. It doesn't look the same. So there's no comparison. You can't look around. I mean, this is what recovery looks like. And so there's a whole community, multiple communities uh, gathered around these individuals, helping them get through relapse prevention and building healthier habits for a whole life. Once, Once they've gotten through Genesis phase, generally speaking, they've been with us at the open door for about eight months to 10 months by the time they've gotten through Genesis phase. We go into our transition program, which equips them with job readiness because now we've we've taught them how to be sober, but now they have to relearn how to work sober. 
mm-hmm. how to socialize sober, how to live sober. Uh, and so we work on everything from resume to uh, to getting our financial uh, our financial literacy taken care of. We have great volunteers and community partners that come in and uh, give great services to our guys in in transition. And once they uh, once they have a plan uh, and an exit strategy put together, they move into what's called the graduate phase. And that's taking their plan that they've spent a, a little over a year putting in place and actually acting it out and 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 what i'm what what i'm most pleased about uh, with the open door missions uh program is that we follow our guys um for up to five years after after they exit our program and in the last five years um we we probably follow about 68 69 guys uh, who've gone through our program totally and completely, and we're we're at a, a probably around sixty seven percent who have maintained not just their sobriety but their recovery, mm-hmm. and it's because I, and I think the 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 secret ingredient uh, in, in in our approach to addiction and certainly our approach to recovery is this 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 component of community that is so infused in every phase and every stage of our program. So, um, you know, I asked Anna this last week, um, I'm going to ask you when, when people talk about the opioid crisis, what are things that make you cringe when they say things? No, uh, those people, Mm. the, the term, those people make me cringe. Um, if if the opioid crisis has taught us anything about addiction, it I hope that it's finally taught us that those people are us. Because um, I for the first time in 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 a long time, probably since the alcohol crisis, right? Like we're seeing our neighbors, our brothers, our sisters, our parents uh, affected by this craze. And it's not the drug addicts down in the uh, in the bad part of town. It's not those people. It's us. It's the it's the person you sit next to in church on Sunday. It's the person that you talk to at the bank every week. It, it, it is it is everybody. And if we could just enter into the conversation without the term those people. We, we would create for ourselves such a better place to start from, to understand the, this crisis and, and to be a part of the solution rather than part of what keeps it buried and keeps it perpetuating. Well, you know, the crazy thing about what you're saying, and John, I'd like to get your thought, like <clears throat> if all of us, you know, we talked about this with a guy named Paul Rankin in one of our episodes about addiction. Mm-hmm. If we all really took inventory of our life, we would see that we're addicted to something you know, that might be Netflix, food, working out, there's certain coffee, you know, there's certain addictions of choice. And to think about the barrier, would any of us be committed for a year to give that up? You know, and just the the process that you described, I, I think it's so valuable to let people know, like, all of us are capable of that. Yeah. You know, all it takes is one, you know, one 
bad decision or one, you know, wrong prescription. And, you know, and I think that that's kind of where the Bible comes in is it, it doesn't tell us to run away from our humanity. It, it's to acknowledge that. And even just, you know, I'm going to mention Anna a lot, but that's okay. After the, the poverty discussion, um, you know, we have to realize that many of us were born with privilege that other people didn't have. And so, you know, I never, I grew up, I never had to worry about drugs. I got offered drugs once. I got offered marijuana and the guys, I said, no, I don't want it. And it was after playing basketball. And, you know, the guy looks at me, he knew I was a Christian. He said, Jesus smoked marijuana. And of course, being the the geeky teenager I was, I was like, where's that in the Bible? So, uh, you know, I mean. Which so, is what makes you a fantastic podcaster, by the way. Uh, <laughs> geeky then, hipster now, I don't know. But I don't, I don't think, but, you know, I, I just think we need to acknowledge that, like, there's actually a freedom in realizing that you are one thing out of your control away from losing it all. Yeah. I don't know, John, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, I, so I just had a conversation this past week with somebody who had made a decision that they never thought they would make. And um, it was somebody who, who, you know, by and large thought they were a pretty good person. But, but you know, text came through that this thing had gone down. And um, it, it even as I sat with that person and talked with them, mm. it, it kind of shattered their world this decision that they could, it, it, it shattered their, their almost their, their view of themselves, yeah. you know? Um, and I think the, in that moment I was reminded, Hey, the same thing is true of me. Like I'm one really bad day away from anything, you know, mm-hmm. that's just reality. And I think the more we're in touch with that ourselves, the healthier we are as human beings, the more we can empathize with the people around us. The fact is people don't need our judgment. People need uh, our compassion, yeah. you know, and uh, we can only be compassionate if we realize that we could be in the exact same boat, no matter what the deal is. Absolutely. I, I think that's well said. Yeah. So uh, let, let's get super <clears throat> practical here. Um, not all of us can have a job at open door mission and, and work kind of on the front lines. But as, as you think about this crisis, Mm -hmm. you think about our listeners somewhere in their twenties, you know, and maybe living in the, the good part of the city or something like that. Um, you know, what advice, what steps would you want to say to them about the opioid crisis of how, you know, they can be involved? Uh, so yeah, I, I've given this quite a bit of thought, um, and I would I would say first of all, don't tolerate anything. Um, it, we are we are taught in our culture to be a tolerant culture, and so what tolerant means is we put up with stuff. Um, if if you are noticing something in your brother, your sister, your mother, if you are noticing something that seems off. Don't tolerate it. Confront it. Like, actually talk about it. Uh, com- confront- confrontation is hard for all of us. Uh, but I think loving uh, lo- loving each other is is worth the sacrifice. Like we were like we were just talking about. So don't tolerate anything. We have to we have to overcome. 
the cultural barriers that keep people our social media friends, but don't embrace anyone as mm. as as, as uh, our best friend. Um, so don't tolerate anything. Um, the second thing is you're right. Not everyone is crazy enough to go $100,000 into debt and become uh, an addictions counselor. <laughs> um, um, you don't have to be. The, 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 the great thing is most people in, in the, in involved and affected by this crisis don't need another counselor. Uh, in fact, I'm everyone's least favorite person to see in my program. Mm. Um, if they see me, it means we're working through something. Mm. What they need is a friend. What they need is uh, a volunteer who will serve a meal. What they need is someone who will come to just sit with them and watch the football game on Sunday. What they need is someone who says, who recognizes and sees them and says, Hey, I got an extra seat at my table on, uh, on, on Christmas Eve before service. You, you want to come to dinner with us and, and then go to a Christmas Eve service with us. They need people who are everyday people to invite them to everything day, everything, everyday things, everything days, everyday things. Um, and that's, that's what we need to be doing. And so, um, my second bit of advice would, would be to get involved. It's just that simple. Um, you can, uh, if you're interested in getting involved in open door mission, we have a website page like everybody else. Uh, and there's a button called get involved and you can go there and you can get involved and uh you know all you have to be is yourself that's that's all it takes um i think another practical note is when you get involved however you get involved get close uh get closer than you're comfortable getting um because first of all people are hard to alienate when they're close up and they're hard to hate when they're close up. Mm. Um, and it's hard to hide when you're being loved. Um, and when, when you feel the walls are closing in on you. Um, and, and that's what our, that's what I think we need to be doing as, as the church is closing in on people who isolate themselves, who on a culture that, that sort of elevates, uh, being isolated and individualistic. We have to close in. We have to get so close that it's uncomfortable because then you're about half as close as you actually need to be. Mm. I have sure. one other question, I sure. think, before we end with our final one that we always do. But I imagine, because this is such a huge deal, I mean, I don't just imagine. I'm sure of it. There's people listening right now who probably even clicked on this, the title of this, because they're addicted right now. Mm. They're in the middle of addiction. And um, they've listened to this whole thing. And they're probably searching for hope. They're probably searching for relief. Um, they might be like your brother, you know, sitting across the table from you at the coffee shop. Um, what words would you have for them in this moment? If you could be sitting across the table rather than a microphone, if you were sitting across the table from them right now, 
what words would you have for them? The words would uh, probably be the the ones that I wish I could say to Sean mm -hmm. would be, you're not alone. Um, and I, I'm here to help. There is there is hope. You don't just have to look for it. it, it there is hope. And we, we want to help you. Um, and so I don't need you to do anything except give me a call. And uh, for anyone listening... You, you might think I'm crazy, but here's the number, 585-454-6696, ask for Zeb, and you're you not say, alone. Can you say that phone number one more time? Absolutely. It's 585-454-6696, and you can ask for Zeb. Um, you're not alone. We have a solution. Mm. His name is Jesus, and you think you know him. But let's do this together. Wow, man, that is really powerful. And as I'm sitting across from you, I can I can see the emotion there. I know that people can pick that up as well. Um, and I'm blessed by hearing you approach it so authentically and so real. I feel like um, that's a perfect transition into our last question, you know. You've been here before, so second time club. <laughs> yeah, that's right, second time club. So, how would Jesus talk about this? What would Jesus say about this subject that we're talking about today, Peter? I'll let you have the first go at it this time. John's getting a little payback because the last yeah. couple episodes we started with him, but that's right. <clears throat> um, I, I've spent a lot of time in Mark nine lately, and there's this story of um there's this father who has a demon possessed son and he is, um, he goes to the disciples, the disciples try to pray, pray it out. And Jesus comes down and he sees the religious leaders and everybody's, you know, yelling and screaming and it's a chaotic scene. And, and this boy is like convulsing mm -hmm. and he's looking at the father and he's like, do you believe that I can heal him? And the father says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And, um, you know, as I think about the opioid crisis, you know, I, I think about how, how many loved ones, how many sponsors, how many people are looking at Jesus and saying, I believe, but help my unbelief. I look at how many addicts are saying the same thing and how that is such a human experience. And, um, you know, when it says blessed are the poor in spirit, it's the realization that I I don't have what I need. I think that's a lesson for all of us, but that also changes the way that we see other people because we realize that I want to believe so badly that Jesus is true, that I can experience freedom, but help me with my unbelief. And if we saw every person that way, not just with the opioid crisis, how much that would change the way we love people, kind of the way you talked about. Yeah, that's really well said. Peter, and I, I, my thoughts go to a passage in Mark as well, um, where a woman who is is suffering from bleeding uh, approaches Jesus, and she is in such shame. She's a social outcast, and she is just desperate, though. She's tried everything she can do on her own. She's gone to the experts on her own. She's tried every possible avenue, and nothing is working for her. 
Um, nothing is taking away the pain. And in a last ditch effort, a whole crowd is around Jesus. And she thinks to herself, maybe if I just reach out and touch Jesus garment, mm. I'll be mm. healed. And she does it. And lo and behold, she is healed. But the story could end there and that would be a happy ending. But Jesus pauses and he says, you know, something crazy, who touched me? Yeah. And his disciples are like, what? The whole crowd is touching you. And he said, no, no, who touched me? Power went out from me. And finally this woman sheepishly kind of raises her hand and says, it was me. Mm. And Jesus' reaction in that moment is so beautiful. It's not one of, I'm going to put you to shame. It's not one of, um, like, you're part of the other class. Yeah. It is, okay, your faith has healed you. Mm. Go in peace. Mm. He loves her. He shows her respect. He shows her love. He, sh he brings her into part of the larger community, as you're talking about, Zeb, which I think is a beautiful picture of Jesus. Yeah and one that we often don't think he would react that way if I reached out to him. Right. So um, that's where my mind goes. That Zeb, we'll let you cl close us out, though. Sure. So you guys uh, challenged me. You went to Mark. I'm going to hang out in Matthew. All right. All right. <laughs> and where my mind goes is this this opioid crisis is so big. It's so prevalent. Like you were saying at the, be at the beginning, we hear about it all the time, and the question, it can be overwhelming to, to say, what can I do to actually make a difference? Like, it is, it's, too, it's too much. It's too big. There. Matthew 25. Jesus tells a story about the separating of the goats and the sheep, and we all know it. And he says, um, he turns to the sheep, and he... It struck me recently, he says, whatever you did to one, whatever you did to one, you see, it's not our job, it's not up to us to fix the whole opioid crisis, it's not up to us to reach every everybody living in addiction, but I think Jesus has given us the challenge to look at the one in front of us mm. and know that however we've loved them, however we've embraced them, however we've brought them in, that's what we've done to him. And so he says, come to me, find the one. And that's what I would, uh, that, that's, that's, would be my advice. Find the one and uh, do it unto Jesus. Zeb, um, as people are listening one more time, can you give the phone number if someone's facing addiction um, to the open door mission? Absolutely. It's 585 454 Six six nine six. Ask for Zeb. And then it's opendoormission.com. .com. Thank you so much for everybody joining the Why God Why podcast. Um, I'd encourage you to share this, um, not only with those that you know that might be um, experiencing addiction, but the family members and even your friends. I'd encourage you to have these conversations. Um, it's so important. Um, make sure you give us a five-star review on iTunes. 
Um, we we'll are take on, four. We'll, t- we'll take four. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. If you think we're, you know, just okay. Wow. wow. Yeah, we'll take four. That's fine. Well, you know, we'll take anything. Just review us, okay? Uh, on so iTunes. L- We'd love that. Literally, yeah. I I just copy what other podcasters say, <laughs> and they all they all say give five star reviews. So, well, how about if someone isn't feeling a five star review? Then they got it. Then they feel the pressure. We don't want them to lie. In the words of Sam Acho, one yeah. of our former right. you know guests who's now playing for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, you yeah. do you. Yeah, that's right. You do you. That's you right. You do you. So, so, yeah, give us a review. Give us a review. Yeah. So uh, we'll have to talk about that in the post meeting. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, go to whygodwhypodcast.com. Thank you so much for being with us. 